Winona Ryder was the quintessential 90s leading lady. There was her moody beauty, her high-profile relationship with equally moody heartthrob Johnny Depp, and of course, the dark films that made her famous, Beetlejuice, Heathers, Edward Scissorhands. It all dovetailed perfectly with a decade obsessed with Nirvana and the grunge aesthetic. Winona was an irresistible it girl. She had her pick of jobs, a bank account full of money, a closet full of designer clothes. She'd achieved the kind of Hollywood success other actresses fantasize about. And that's exactly when she jeopardized it all. With an apparently senseless crime. Shoplifting. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is a show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Today, we'll examine how Winona Ryder went from Hollywood darling to felony Barbie. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's always been a kind of glamour to shoplifting. This has to do in part with how it's been represented on screen. Classic Hollywood flicks like Hitchcock's Marnie, painted as a Freudian crime based in sexual perversion and committed exclusively by beautiful women. Other films have taken a more lighthearted approach to this kind of theft, like Breakfast at Tiffany's. The film's lead, played by Audrey Hepburn, is impish and playful, including when she shoplifts. She teases her beau and sticks a lampshade on her head in the process. All the while, though, Audrey remains impeccably glamorous. If shoplifting is sometimes about sex and sometimes about fun and games, it always belongs to beautiful women, at least according to Hollywood. In reality, men shoplift as much as women, and you certainly don't have to be beautiful to steal. But like many Americans, Winona Ryder would have met the screen thieves first when she was just a little girl watching movies projected onto a sheet in a barn. Winona's childhood was unconventional. Her parents were hippies, friends with the likes of Allen Ginsberg and famed LSD researcher Timothy Leary. Leary was Winona's godfather. When Winona was seven, the family moved to a commune in Northern California, where they lived with six other families amongst the majestic redwoods. It was beautiful, and it wasn't a cult, unlike many of the so-called communes that make the news. Winona has always been careful to emphasize that. That doesn't mean that her unconventional home life didn't have an impact on her, though. She struggled socially in school, where she missed the pop culture references other kids volleyed around. They didn't have a TV set on the commune. Her thrift store hippie family outfits didn't match the style of other kids. She constantly felt like an outsider. Then things got worse. The exclusion turned violent. On the first day of seventh grade at a new school, a group of kids tossed a homophobic slur at her and slammed her head against a locker. The school administration doubled down on the cruelty. They said Winona was a distraction and asked her not to come back. From then on, she was homeschooled. These early experiences may have left Winona with some very deep-rooted trauma. 
Before we continue with Winona's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. And there's plenty available on the lifelong impact of serious, cruel exclusion during childhood. Clinical psychologist Dita M. Oliker puts it this way, Regardless of what caused the child, and ultimately the adult, to feel like an outsider, the emotional cost is one of deep loneliness and of never belonging. Luckily, Winona did have a space where she could escape her isolation, at home with her family and the other commune kids. They'd play out on the land, racing around looking for adventure, and imagining the sap of the redwoods was a cascade of jewels. This rich home life likely helped mitigate the loneliness caused by Winona's experiences at school. Still, her sense that she was an outsider amongst normal kids may have pushed her to search for other kinds of escape as well, other places where she could belong. One of the first was books. She loved to read. A book was like a portal to another universe. And with enough books, you could get anywhere, be friends with anyone. She also loved movies. The first film Winona ever saw was Fantasia in the theater as a five-year-old, and she was enthralled. She ran up to the screen and threw herself at it. She wanted to get into the movie immediately. For now, though, she just got kicked out of the theater. Most of Winona's other movie-watching experiences were home at the commune. Her mother leveraged friendships with university employees into a steady supply of films, at the time still literal film reels that she'd play on a projector. Winona, propped up on futons on the barn floor, just kept on falling in love with the screen, especially once she saw To Kill a Mockingbird. The classic about a trial in the Jim Crow South is warm and funny, but it deals with serious themes of justice and integrity. Something about it really impacted Winona, perhaps because it showed her that films could do even more than weave the escapist magic of Fantasia. With To Kill a Mockingbird, she saw that films could also start conversations. They could create something meaningful. If she couldn't fit in with kids her age, maybe she could with the kinds of people doing that. By the time her family moved off the commune and headed to Petaluma, she was 11 years old and determined to be an actress. Now, Petaluma was still in North California, just outside San Francisco. It's a far cry from Hollywood. And on top of that, her parents were deeply suspicious of show business and what it might do to a sensitive, artistic kid like Winona. Still, they saw how she responded to film, and they weren't the type to deny real passion. So they agreed to start taking her down to some auditions with a few conditions. If she was going to act, it had to be in addition to school, not instead of it. So she had to maintain a 4.0 GPA, and she could only book jobs that shot in the summer during her school break. It took two years to land her first job, a film called Lucas, opposite Charlie Sheen and Corey Haim. But from there, her star was on the rise. As it turned out, Winona had talent as well as passion. Her big brown eyes and sharp little face could be incredibly expressive. 
From the moment she finally landed on a film set, no amount of caution from her parents was going to stop her. In fact, Winona said that her family's reluctance to take her on lots of auditions may have contributed to her success. It made her seem like she was in a position to pick and choose roles before she really was, which made her extra desirable to executives who wanted in on the next big thing. And it wasn't long before she was the big thing, Hollywood's favorite new actress, at least when it came to dark, brooding outsider roles. Winona seemed to thrive in these, perhaps because of her own painful experiences as an outsider. First, there was her big breakout role in the dark comedy, Heathers. The movie shows Winona coming into a tightly hierarchical high school and taking down the mean girls with murder. Then in 1990, there was her role in Edward Scissorhands. She plays a young suburban girl who loves the strange, scissor-handed Edward. She's not held back by the conventions of her environment. The role helped cement her status as Hollywood's favorite angsty outsider. It also set her opposite Johnny Depp and skyrocketed her to new levels of tabloid fame while she was still a teenager. Winona and Johnny were actually already dating by the time they shot Edward Scissorhands. They met at a premiere in 1989 when Winona was 17 and Johnny was 26. Five months later, they were engaged. At the time, there wasn't much cultural focus on the problematic power dynamics of large age gaps like this, even in couples where one party wasn't a legal adult. In retrospect, Winona, too, has nothing but affection for her time with Johnny and Johnny himself. As she put it, I truly and honestly only know him as a really good man, an incredibly loving, extremely caring guy who was so very protective of me and the people that he loves, and I felt so very, very safe with him. I want to honor her experience, but at the very least, her decision to be with an older man hints that she was still struggling to connect with her peers. After all, she'd never connected with kids her age, and her acting success only accentuated the difference between her and other teens. But if acting was, in part, an attempt to find somewhere she did fit in, there was an inevitable experience gap between her and the older people it brought her in contact with, too. As Winona put it, she was pure virgin when she got together with Johnny. She said, he was my first everything, my first real kiss, my first real boyfriend, the first guy I had sex with. Meanwhile, he was divorced. For a time, that didn't seem to matter. They were constantly together. They gushed about one another in interviews. Depp famously tattooed Winona Forever on his bicep. But when things fizzled out after three whirlwind years, Winona's rep told People magazine they're young and they grew apart. It's true, they were young, but she was younger, just 20 years old, more famous than she'd ever been. And now she'd lost the man that for years she considered family. Her mental health showed the strain, sending her to a very dark place. Coming up, the price of a whirlwind rise to celebrity. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the end of 1993, Winona Ryder had released more than a dozen films. She'd been working nonstop since she was 13, working overtime if you count the number of photo spreads her relationship with Johnny Depp provided the tabloids, and the public, it seemed, thought they owned her. As she put it, what's awful about being famous and being an actress is when people come up to you and touch you. That's scary, and they just seem to think it's okay to do it, like you're public property. This was not easy for Winona, who reportedly started having periodic panic attacks as early as 12. That sensitive, artistic, intellectual soul that made her such a powerful performer also left her vulnerable to the effects of an extremely high-pressure industry, just like her parents had worried. In the wake of a painful, painfully public breakup with Johnny, the anxiety got much worse. She described the overwhelming horror this way. My breathing would get labored. Everything would start speeding up and I'd get very scared. The closest I ever came to describing it was that feeling when you almost get in a car wreck and you swerve and for a second there are needles in your head and needles in your body. It's that moment, but stretched out. Winona's first response to her deteriorating mental state was escape. She checked into a hotel after her breakup, and for several weeks, she drank screwdriver after screwdriver from a minibar listening to Tom Waits. Cigarettes scratched her throat, but she smoked and smoked. Until one night, she said, I fell asleep with a lit cigarette and woke up to the flames. Luckily, she was fine, physically, but Winona took those flames as a metaphorical warning. For her, it was a wake-up call. Her anxiety was now paired with depression, and she needed help. She checked herself into a psychiatric hospital. This experience did not go well. She found the structure of the facility put walls around her problems, but didn't actually help fix them. Later, she'd draw on her time there for the film Girl Interrupted. The picture takes a critical look at how institutions treat mental illness. For now, though, she just wanted out. After one week, she left the facility. Still, Winona kept trying to get her anxiety and depression under control. She had too much left to do to let it rule her life, too many stories left to tell. After all, the scripts were still flowing wildly through the door. She was still one of the biggest actresses in Hollywood. So she worked with a psychotherapist. With this practitioner's help, she was able to return to work. She reached a breakthrough moment while shooting on location in Portugal. 
She was working on the film The House of Spirits, where her character is physically tortured and kitted out in bruised makeup that reflects that. At the end of a long, grueling day of shooting, she came home. She undressed, and she just stood in front of the mirror, looking at her battered body. What a sad, cruel sight. No body should ever look like that. And yet, something about it was so familiar to her, which is when she realized, wow, is this what I'm doing to myself inside? The torture had to end. For a while, it seemed like it had. Winona took her breakthrough, turned it into healing, and continued to make movies. In 1999, several years and many hits later, she did press for Girl Interrupted and talked publicly about her depression for the first time, in the past tense. When the New York Times paraphrased her on the subject, the article called it a bout of mental illness. In 1999, looking back, it may have felt like a bout, or maybe that was just an easier line for Winona to feed the press as she tried to promote her movie. This was before the days when celebrities regularly and openly checked into rehab, before the public was supportive of long, difficult battles with mental illness. Winona may have worried that if she showed the real, current vulnerability, she wouldn't get positive, friendly reviews in the press. So she was open about her struggles from before. But that may not be the whole story. A lifetime of anxiety fed into Winona's so-called bout of depression, which suggests that it didn't come out of nowhere, and leaving a history of mental health struggles fully in the past is not a given, much less easy. Dr. Alan Gellenberg, a professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania, explains, Of people diagnosed with major depressive disorder who are treated and recover, at least half are likely to experience a recurrent episode sometime in their future. It may come soon after, or not for many years. It may or may not be triggered by a life event. Generally, major depressive disorder is not considered curable, but rather treatable. It ebbs and flows over a person's lifetime, and they can manage the symptoms with techniques like psychotherapy or prescription drugs. Now, I'm not sure if Winona was ever formally diagnosed with major depressive disorder, also called clinical depression, but she calls her experience depression, and many of the characteristics she describes line up with formal diagnostic characteristics assigned to the illness. Plus, later on, she said explicitly, it's not something that's just past tense for me. It's something you battle with your whole life. Most likely in 1999, Winona's struggles with mental illness were not cured, but in an ebb rather than a flow. She did seem to be doing well. She was dating a new Hollywood hunk, Matt Damon. It was apparently going great. The New York Times noted, she does not hide the fact that she is happily in love and flushes like a schoolgirl when a waiter asks about him. Not to mention, Matt was almost exactly her age. At 28, she was finally the same age as her co-stars and boyfriends. Not only had she cemented her place in her industry, she was really amongst peers now. Memories of being an outsider might have still fueled her performances in films like Girl Interrupted, but by the end of the 90s, she was, in fact, the consummate insider. If anyone belonged, it was Winona. 
and she was enjoying that, for now. But Hollywood is called Tinseltown for a reason. All that glitters is not gold. And Winona was about to meet one of the darkest features of her industry head-on. It's fickle, fickle favor. All thanks to one little crime. Coming up, a shopping trip gone very wrong. Now back to the story. In 1999, Winona Ryder was 28 years old and on top of the world. By late 2001, things weren't looking as bright. Winona was still one of Hollywood's favorite leading ladies. Woody Allen wanted her for his upcoming movie, Melinda and Melinda. But she was going through a hard time. She's never gotten into the details of what was causing this hard time, but there are a few factors that may have contributed. She and Matt Damon had broken up. What had been a sweet, happy relationship was over after more than two years. And she was coming up on her 30th birthday on October 29th. Although she was as beautiful as ever, it's possible that Winona had started worrying about what her career might look like as she pushed further into her 30s. It can be a tricky age to navigate in Hollywood. Actresses in their 30s can be seen as too old to play romantic leads and too young to play the mothers of those leads. Those things alone would be enough to mess with anyone's mental state. Throw in a history of anxiety and depression, and it's no wonder Winona was struggling. Then, in October 2001, she broke her arm in two places. To deal with the pain of the injury, a doctor prescribed Winona a number of prescription painkillers. He'd eventually have his license revoked. Later, Winona herself would call him a quack. Whether she went to him looking for a quack, the kind of unethical doctor who'd prescribe her whatever she wanted, we don't know. But this is how she described what happened next. There was this weird point when you don't know if you're in pain, but you're taking the drugs anyway. And unsurprisingly, they were causing confusion. Cut to two months later, December 12, 2001, Winona went shopping at the Saks Fifth Avenue department store in Beverly Hills. She collected around $5,500 worth of merchandise. This included a Marc Jacobs cream-colored thermal top, a Notori handbag, and a pair of Donna Karen tan cashmere socks, amongst a slew of other designer items. Then, instead of walking to the checkout, she attempted to steal them. The guards closed in. Winona, a tiny woman with an armful of designer clothes, didn't get far. They pulled her into a back room. She was caught. Now, it's standard practice for Saks Fifth Avenue to call in police when a client attempts to steal a large amount of merchandise, even Winona. But what happened next is less standard. In the two years prior to Winona's crime, around 5,000 people were charged with shoplifting in L.A. County, including individuals who allegedly stole more than Winona. Almost all of them were let off with misdemeanors. That's the standard penalty for shoplifting. Officially, however, if you shoplift items worth more than $400, you can be prosecuted for something much more serious, grand theft. You can also get slapped with vandalism and trespassing, lesser charges that aim to prevent shoplifters from returning to the stores where they stole. 
In Winona's case, the DA didn't go for shoplifting charges. He went for grand theft, vandalism, and trespassing. There are likely a few reasons for this. One being, Winona would not agree to plead guilty, even to a misdemeanor, even though her theft had been caught on Sachs' security tape and she'd signed a confession in front of Sachs' security employees. Not to mention, she allegedly claimed that she was doing research for a role in which she'd be playing a kleptomaniac, which was not the most sympathetic explanation. The guards, meanwhile, allegedly asked Winona to pull her skirt and shirt up. But for all the messy details of what happened at Saks, there was also another likely factor in the harsh prosecution. A new DA named Steve Cooley had recently gotten elected on the campaign slogan, Money Talks, Celebrities Walk. The slogan referred to the O.J. Simpson case, which was prosecuted by the previous DA. But Winona was a celebrity too, with money, and Cooley couldn't just let her walk, not after using that slogan. The press was aware of the notably harsh treatment Winona was receiving. The New York Times said, anywhere else, this petty crime by a first-time offender would have quickly ended with a plea bargain. The article went on to deplore the municipal resources guzzled by the case. Some accounts indicated that they totaled hundreds of times the amount usually spent on shoplifting cases. But the press also contributed to the drama of the whole affair significantly. Much of the coverage was on Winona's side, ostensibly. Saturday Night Live brought her on to host and made copious jokes at the expense of the DA's case. But there was also an element of schadenfreude to the coverage, a kind of snide, gawking curiosity. The press played over every detail again and again like it was a soap opera. As the trial got underway, articles dissected each item of clothing Winona wore to court. Slate awarded her the title Felony Barbie. One article began, this is not a film performance that is going to garner Winona Ryder any Oscar nominations. It seems the press was confusing those glamorous female shoplifters from the silver screen with real life. This conflation seemed to delight them. It was too perfect, too cinematic. Hollywood come to life. But of course, this wasn't a film performance, Oscar-winning or otherwise. This was a real woman facing criminal charges. And unlike Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, Winona did not get off with a song and a dance. The prosecutorial zeal, the hoopla in the press, and the strong evidence against her all led the march towards the final verdict, guilty. The legal penalties for the charges, it turned out, were not so dire. In December 2002, Winona was strapped with 480 hours of community service, five years probation, and drug counseling. Once she completed her sentence, her charges would be reduced to a misdemeanor. Finally, a whirlwind year of legal drama was over. And for Winona, the results of the case hadn't all been bad. As she put it, in a very weird way, it was a blessing because I couldn't take the painkillers anymore. The painkillers that most likely she'd been using to self-medicate her anxiety and depression. 
Meanwhile, the fashion world actually seemed awed by Winona's exploit. It had the sexy allure of Hollywood's classic shoplifting stories, only real. One company produced a t-shirt emblazoned with Free Winona, which flew off the shelves during her trial. Calvin Klein invited her to model for them, seemingly not despite, but because she'd stolen Calvin Klein merchandise during her spree. And Winona seemed to embrace this. She wore one of the free Winona shirts on the cover of W Magazine. She did the Calvin Klein campaign. But this turn to fashion may have been driven less by enthusiasm than by necessity, because there were some harsher consequences for her crime. Namely, in the world where she'd made her life, Hollywood. That Woody Allen film offer? It was rescinded. Apparently, Allen couldn't get insurance to cover Winona on set after her brush with the law. Meanwhile, Winona practically disappeared from the silver screen. Many people attributed this to the scandal. They wondered if she wasn't getting roles anymore, if her career was ruined, all thanks to one senseless crime. A boatload of stolen clothes she had plenty of money to pay for. But the truth is likely more complicated than that. Winona moved back to Northern California after the trial. The circus had exponentially increased the attention on her, something that had always been a part of acting and always triggered her anxiety. The anxiety that had been at a high point when she started taking painkillers and stole from Saks Fifth Avenue. She may have felt that she needed some space from her industry, some time to reflect, relax, and recover. And then there was the age thing. Some commentators have speculated that Winona's hiatus from acting wasn't driven by the shoplifting scandal or her desire to get out of the spotlight, at least not entirely. The whole affair coincided exactly with her early 30s, that age when many leading ladies start struggling to find roles. Beginning around 2006, Winona did start acting again, but no longer as a leading lady. Notably, she won critical accolades for her role in 2010's Black Swan, in which she played an aging ballet dancer. And arguably, she only came back to Hollywood's center stage in 2016, with a well-received role in the Netflix show Stranger Things, where she plays a mother. That bracket of Hollywood role historically reserved for women in their 40s, which she now was. In the end, the shoplifting scandal may have been less a career-breaker than an auspiciously timed blip in the timeline of Winona's career. Still, it takes its place as a cultural moment amongst the other major celebrity scandals of the 2000s, one that the media spun out into a circus when it should have been a moment to reflect on mental health and the pressure we often put on our idols, pressure that can easily drive them to their breaking point. And it's not just Winona. Think of Britney Spears and her infamous breakdown in 2007. She didn't get any sympathy for her struggle, at least not at the time, just article after article gawking at her. But however many fashion spreads you attach to someone's breaking point, it's just not glamorous. It's interesting to see Winona's attitude towards the slew of kids she works with on Stranger Things. She feels protective of them and advises that child actors always have a home environment where they can escape the industry. This comes from a place of having been there herself, a working kid feeling the pressures of Hollywood. As she puts it, 
I'm the mom, even though I'm not really the mom. As the outsider who became the insider, as an it girl and tabloid queen, as a criminal, Winona has seen it all. In the process, by talking about her experiences, she's helped raise the kind of awareness around mental health issues that may do the most good in protecting young people like the Stranger Things kids and people everywhere. Now, we just have the pleasure of waiting to see what she'll do next. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 